Today's episode is sponsored by Alone in the Dark. The highly anticipated new reimagination by Pieces Interactive and THQ Nordic. Play as Edward Carnby or Emily Hartwood to explore your environments, fight monsters, solve puzzles, and uncover the true secret of Dorsetto Manor. Our favorite heroes are brought to life by Hollywood stars Jodie Comer of Killing Eve and David Harbour of Stranger Things, who lend not only their voices, but their appearance and their formidable acting skills to the brave protagonists. Experience a deep psychological story that goes beyond the realms of the imaginable, all dreamed up by Mikhail Hedberg, cult horror writer of Soma and Amnesia. The team at Pieces Interactive is supported by monster designer and legendary Guillermo del Toro collaborator Guy Davis, as well as doom jazz legend Jason Conan, who provides his eerie and haunting melodies for the right atmosphere. Alone in the Dark is available March 20th on PS5, Xbox Series XS, and PC. Pre-order your copy now and escape into the dark. Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome to another episode of Project Serapis. As a reminder, we're doing something a little different this season. Over the course of 12 weeks, we're telling one story about a single SCP and its effect across the decades. Well, you can jump in at this episode. For the best listening experience, we suggest that you start with Project Serapis Part 1, 2021, and then catch up to us here. Aside from that, not too much to talk about this week. Uh, I hope you guys are enjoying this show. Um, Ben Counter, the writer, is absolutely incredible, uh, and some of the best episodes are yet to come. In other news, we recently launched a true crime show called Insidious Inspirations. Me and Addison Peacock are two of the writers on this show, and Nicole Goodnight, who you might know from this show, is our host. If you love horror movies, and you want to know about the true stories that inspired almost all of our favorite horror movies, check it out. You can find Insidious Inspirations wherever you listen to podcasts, or by visiting insidious.show. And without further ado, this week's episode. Warning. The Foundation database is classified. Unauthorized access will result in detainment. Within this archive, you'll find the procedures, descriptions, and accounts of the most notorious anomalies we've encountered to date. Secure. Contain. Protect. This is Agent Hector Gallio. Following information is classified level 5 under Project Serapis. O5 eyes only. I started research into the anomalies in the Shibbetsvale area of southern Montana by starting with the most recent events and working backwards. After the incident at the Whitetail Ski Lodge, the next incident was from the County Search and Rescue Service. This outfit conducts operations to find people lost in the wilderness across much of the southern part of the state. In 1992, the service conducted an operation to search for three missing hikers on the southern slopes of the Morning Cloak Mountains. Post-operation briefing was sealed. That's strange enough. Stranger still as the local police and emergency services had no record of it at all. Foundation protocols let me get hold of a copy of the operation's records. 
which existed only on paper in the search and rescue services offices and were never computerized. The reason for all the secrecy became obvious as I read through it. What I received was a package of documents including written materials recovered during the operation and transcripts of interviews with the rescuers involved. In particular, one of them, a former firefighter and search volunteer named Gerald McCoffrey, kept detailed journals of operations to use in training. It was his notes that let me reconstruct the events of 1992. McCoffrey died at the age of 72, two years ago, of chronic emphysema. It seems he never spoke to anyone, at least in any official capacity, of what happened in 1992. I wish I could have met him in person. The Journal of Search and Rescue Volunteer McCoffrey. This operation takes place in the southern Morning Cloak Mountains, about 12 miles northeast of Scarslow. The area is called Shibbets Vale. We were looking for three hikers who had failed to return to their hotel in Scarslow. Volunteers found their vehicles parked just off the road near the old summer camp, with the hikers themselves absent. Realizing they must still be on the mountain, county search and rescue was alerted and we set up a search for them. Roman Blissett, age 32, experienced outdoorsman, mostly hunting. Brian Herkham, age 28, known as Herc. Not a veteran, but not a complete novice either, and smart. Michelle Everly, known as Shelby, age 44, very experienced. By all accounts, they were decently equipped and had made all the right preparations. They knew what they were doing. The most likely scenario was one or more of them had been injured in an accident, and the others were sticking with the injured party to wait for rescue. I've run searches like this before, but not in the morning cloaks. Not many hikers go up there. It's not as well known as a lot of the other parts of the state. There are established paths, though, some of them from the logging around here decades ago. The three hikers left their itinerary at the hotel. They were only supposed to spend a single night camping on the mountain before returning. We had the approximate location of their camp, so I decided to locate it and then radiate out to search for them, as well as posting men on the path back to their vehicles in case they made it off the mountain on their own. The weather was good, though even in summer it can get cold higher up. The terrain is rough, though. The morning cloaks are rugged and steep in places. The ground can fall away suddenly when your view is masked by the trees. There are bears and mountain lions around, too. It was my first time in these mountains. The same for most of the other volunteers. This is Crow Country, and I contacted the tribal council at the reservation. They didn't have anyone familiar with the area, since it turns out the Crow never settled in Shibbets Vale itself. Not sure why. It seems as good country as anywhere else. Hour 8. We got to the campsite in a few hours of hard hiking. It was just off the path leading to the first shoulder of the southernmost peak. It was still beneath the tree line. Three single-man tents around a fire pit, all of them empty. The tents still had sleeping bags and ground sheets. Looks like they were planning to come back here, but never did. There were some personal belongings left in the tents. Toiletries, changes of clothes... The hikers were keeping trail diaries, which we found. 
Once we checked the immediate area and were satisfied they weren't there, I radioed guys by the cars, who relayed to Scarslow that we'd need air support from State to get some eyes in the sky. Don't know how long it'll take. We're in the unknown phase now. Those three could be back at the hotel, with no idea we're looking for them. They could be lying dead in a ravine, could be hurt and desperate for help. Every decision we make could be the difference between them living or dying, or everything we do might be pointless. You have to think in percentages, and tell yourself you did the best with the info you had, regardless of how it turns out. You keep going. You tick all the boxes, follow all the procedures. Even if the worst happens, you have to be able to say you gave them the best chance you could. The Journal of Michelle Shelby Everly. I'm worried. Not about the safety of Herc and Roman, they'll be fine. I don't think they understand this land. It's not about conquering it or making it your muse. It's about respecting it. Reaching an equilibrium with it. It clears our mind of all the things we don't need. It makes us stable. <sighs> Herc and Roman don't understand that. The morning cloaks are beautiful. But you have to put some effort into finding the beauty. The conifers up to the tree line are so dense it's like walking at night. The rocks are brown and gray, and this time of year... The snow is only on the uppermost slopes. It's not an alpine valley or a Tuscan estate. It doesn't jump out at you like the lid of a chocolate box. You have to understand what it means. The forces that pushed these mountains up from the ground. The winters every tree and blade of grass has to survive. You have to make the most of every glimpse of Shibbet's veil through the canopy. As if the mountains are rationing them to remind you who's in charge. We got to the clearing a couple of hours after I'd planned. Herc is a lot slower than me and Roman. I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into. The tents went up, we built a fire to cook. Roman told his stories about the winter trekking he did in Colorado. I assumed to impress Herc since I've known Roman for 15 years and I've heard it all before. They both fell asleep the moment they turned in. I stayed up for a while, looking up at the stars. If I'd chosen anywhere else to camp, the sky would have been hidden by the trees. Like I said, you have to earn the beauty of these mountains. The stars look like nowhere else. I didn't recognize any constellations. There was no Milky Way, just belts of nebulae and glowing planets, like hard points of color. I had heard this place was special. I'm only starting to realize it now. In the morning, we'll keep going. Whatever the mountain has for us, we'll have to work to get to it. Hour 12. By now, the concern for the missing hikers is severe. They haven't come back down the mountain, and going by Shelby Everly's journal, they kept heading upwards. State has sent a couple of planes to perform a contour search, but the tree cover is heavy enough that we're far more likely to find them with the ground search. I organized this into three teams, one to stay at the camp and two to follow the most prominent trails. We found a backpack. It was by the trail, at the foot of a tree. 
It had a couple of empty water bottles and nutrient bar wrappers, sunscreen and bug repellent, and spare socks, along with a spiral-bound notebook. From the journal entries in the notebook, the bag belonged to Roman Blissett. It's never a good sign when hikers start shedding their belongings. It suggests they're injured or exhausted and have to ditch some weight to keep moving. At least it confirms Roman headed this way. I relayed this by radio to the other teams, who passed it on to the aerial searchers. They're going to focus on the slopes above where the pack was found, while we keep looking down here. There's something uneasy about these mountain slopes. I've been all over this state and plenty of places beyond, and this is different. The trees are denser, the birds are quieter, even the sky looks different, like a slightly wrong shade of blue. I can feel it, too, like the way the air is just before a storm. Shelby was right. Shibbets Vale and the Morning Cloak Mountains are different. That's why she came here. Maybe it's why she hasn't come back. The Journal of Roman Blizzard. Second day, and Herc is getting on my nerves. He keeps wanting to pause every 20 minutes to take photos or write down some poetry bullshit. He can't keep up as it is. Shelby's real quiet. You know, I, I can't tell if she's annoyed too or if it's something else. Could never really get a read on her. But I've seen something. I was taking a leak just off the trail, and I heard something moving. You never know when a mountain lion or something strayed close to the trail, and I'd finished and zipped up when it moved again, and this time I saw it, and I backed off real slow. It walked out from between two of the big old fir trees, and I thought it was a black bear. I mean, it, it, was, it was a black bear, <laughs> but I'm only going to ride it here. I won't tell anyone. I don't want them thinking that I'm, you know, losing it, going cuckoo. And this bear had two mouths, one on top of the other. The lower one was like a big wound in its throat, but with fangs all yellow and misshapen. It was drooling blood. It had eyes all over its head, six or eight of them, shiny black orbs and red sockets. It, it had another pair of legs sticking out of its sides, but they looked kind of broken. It dragged them behind it as it walked forward. It was kind of a lopsided, like, uh, like its legs were of different lengths. Long slits opened down its sides like they were breathing, like gills. Little white tendrils on the inside, too. Mm. It made this wet, growling sound, and I kept backing away, slow enough to not make any noise. I couldn't tell if it was looking at me, not with those shiny black eyes, and I didn't have a camera on me, but even if I had, I don't know if I would have risked getting a shot. The thing was diseased, maybe. Or a kind of mutant, like those animals that sometimes get born with, you know, five legs or two heads or whatever. But the weirdest thing 
is in that moment, it wasn't that weird. I mean, it fitted in there. I, I, I can't explain it better than that. It, it felt like I was the thing that shouldn't be there. So I got back to the trail. The thing didn't follow me. I, I told the other two that I saw a bear and to be careful. Uh, Herc looked worried, but I said they don't come near people and he believed me. Shelby gave me a look, though. She knew I saw something. We're not walking up a mountain here, all right? We're, we're going somewhere else. Hour 16. I should have had us head back to the campsite and stay there ourselves, or else go back down the trail to the vehicles. But things have changed. The mountain has changed. We followed the most likely path upwards, where the conifers and sparse undergrowth gave way to lush, deep green foliage from trees I couldn't identify. They're not evergreens, even. I've never seen anything like it. We're not that high up, but it should still be only conifers growing up here, not these twisted things with ferny leaves that look like they've been here a thousand years. Moss and grasses underfoot, so thick it's like wading through mud. There are bugs, these big mosquito things with fleshy sack bodies that hang down when they fly, thick slimy caterpillars on the branches, and fruit, too. They hang in bunches from the trees and clutches of white flowers. The fruit are shaped like pears, but a little larger. They're pale and veiny. One of the other volunteers went to pick one, but I warned her against it. Don't mess with things you don't know, I said. And I guess I was talking about this whole mountain. We found another sign of the hikers. It was a bundle wrapped in a t-shirt, weighted down by a rock on top of an exposed root, or it would be obvious. It was a few sheets of paper tied up in a leather necklace with a silver pendant in the shape of a cowrie shell. The necklace is listed in the personal effects of Brian Herkham, and the note was from him, too. I thought of heading back. I know I should do, according to the same rules I drum into the volunteers every season. But these hikers are lost up here, and they left us a trail. The planes can't see anything from the air. It's up to us. The four of us I took with me to follow the trail from the campsite. I think I understand what drew them here. There's an allure to this strange place that demands we follow it in deeper. I have to know what happened here, where they are, what this place did to them. I have to know. I'm going in. Hey everyone, Pacific here with a quick ad break. And a reminder, ad-free and bonus episodes are available at patreon.com slash scp underscore pod. All right, so you guys know that I've been trying to lose weight lately. You know, I've been yeah. kind of uh, on the bigger side for most of my life, but I've, I've been able to drop a lot of weight because I've been trying to eat healthier. You look good. Th thank you. you the problem good. is, is Wonderful. I can't cook at all. Like, I'm basically going to just make I've like... I've tasted your food. I don't know if you guys ever heard of factor meals before. 
Yeah. No. Okay. So factor meals, it's like these easy, ready to eat meals that they'll send to your house. I'm oh, sure you've nice. heard of services that do this. Yes, type yes, of yeah, yes, yes, yes. Sure. Where they send food. And it's this, what I actually really liked about factor is it's like, it has to be kind of idiot proof for me because I can't cook or do anything, but it's like ready in two minutes. It literally comes everything together. You don't have to like make anything. Crap? It's it's all put together in its own thing. Two minutes. It's not frozen, which actually makes it awesome. Oh, nice. You know, the frozen food. Yeah. It comes like in a box that's like chilled, like yeah. with chill the cooling stuff. But uh, you got all kinds. So I did the keto one, but they also have like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus. They've even got like, so my wife ended up really liking these, these like energy shots okay. that they put, they put in the box that we ordered where she, it's literally like just a little shot of different kinds of energy shots that were awesome that sounds amazing was, i always was like i'd see these commercials or i'd hear commercials for stuff but i thought factor meal seemed like something that was really threading that needle and would have been really really perfect for me but dude they had like pancakes smoothies who doesn't know, love pancakes dinners and stuff like that yeah. so they have breakfast they got like midday snacks and I, so i thought it was like perfect. get it in get it done yeah. boom if you're just looking for yeah. like fast premium options and you don't have to really cook or be able to do anything sure factor is awesome for that kind of stuff and i thought the in the quality of the meals restaurant quality meals that i just could like heat and eat dude so it's not like your you know your frozen stuff you get at the grocery store so if you guys want to try factor meals i'd say go for it because it's really helped me out and i i was actually really surprised all you guys have to do is head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 that's five zero to get 50% off that's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off guys give it a try that's half I know and now back to the show the journal of Brian Herc Herkum I'm worried Scratch that, I am scared. I almost lost them both. I started out thinking they would never leave me out on this mountain, no matter how badly I fell behind, but now I... I I don't know. This place is so beautiful. I I can't just let it pass me by. I stop to write down my thoughts or try to make a sketch, not that any of them capture what I'm seeing. The fir trees have given way to a dense, lush forest of ferns and fruiting trees. The sky, the rocks, the trunks of the trees, everything is different and sideways from what I know. But then it changed. And I'm scared. I saw a deer just above us on an outcropping where I could see it clear against the sky. And dear God, it it had wings. Not like a pegasus or an angel. They looked malformed, slimy and then fleshy. It had little segmented limbs running in two rows along its belly like a lobster's. It let out this awful, gurgling sound like the worst smoker's cough. Then Roman came crashing through the trees and yelled at me to get my ass in gear or they'll leave me behind. I assumed the deer would run away at the noise, but it didn't. It turned and looked at him. Its mouth hung open and the long, slimy, tongue slobbered out Roman said there's another one of the bastards he pulled out a gun a big silver revolver I I didn't even know he had brought one and he ran after the deer thing I called for Roman to stop but he didn't listen he disappeared through the trees and this time the deer turned and ran I called out for Shelby hoping she was close enough to hear I paused for a second not sure what I should do then I followed Roman I thought at least if I caught him, I wouldn't be left out here alone. 
trees closed in, and I couldn't even see the sky. Then I heard two gunshots, and I followed them to see Roman standing at the entrance to this, this, this cave. Not a cave in the rocks, but more like a tunnel through the trees. The branches entwined so closely overhead, it formed a dark tunnel. Clusters of pale fruit hung around the entrance. I guess the deer ran in there because Roman was at the entrance, gun out, about to head in. I got the worst feeling about the place. It was like a throat waiting to swallow us. I called out to Roman, but he ignored me again. I don't know why I did it, but I ran right at him and tackled him to the ground. Roman's a bigger guy than me, but I hit him from behind and he wasn't expecting it. We both went down into the undergrowth. It's then I realize I'm wrestling with a guy who has a gun and I scramble out of there before the damn thing goes off. Roman's on his knees all scratched up from the fall. I say, don't go in there. Something's wrong about it. I ask Roman if he can feel it like I can, the way it wants to devour us. I swear I can hear it, breathing. The breath of the mountain, wet and hungry. Roman leans back against the tree, like all the energy suddenly gone out of him. He says he's sorry he isn't thinking straight and that it doesn't seem a good idea to go into the tunnel or cave or, or whatever it is. We agree we should go back to where I saw the deer and try to find Shelby again. We've waited here under the outcropping for an hour. I'm leaving this note here in case we get lost trying to find Shelby. If you can't find us, my guess is one or more of us have ended up in the cave up the slope and a little east of here. I've drawn it underneath as best I remember. You'll know it when you see it. Hour 18. We found Roman Blissett alive and Brian Herkham dead. Roman was uninjured except for some bumps and scrapes, but he was exhausted and distressed. Much longer out here and I don't know if he would have made it. Herkham had two gunshots to the stomach. I just hope he bled out quickly. His body was at the entrance to the tunnel he'd written about. I got Roman clear of the tunnel and asked him what had happened. Then I sent a couple of people to take him back to the campsite where they can get some calories into him before they head down off the mountain. We're going into the cave. I have to know what happened to Shelby Everly. We saw Shelby walking through the forest. Uh, she wouldn't stop when we called to her. Me and her kept up with her, but only just. She moves fast, and we realized she was heading for the cave. Me and her caught up to her just before she got there. I grabbed her, but she threw me off and kneed me in the balls. Ugh, damn, she's stronger than she looks. I swear, that woman must have been made of oak or something. Herc came up behind her, and, and that's when I realized she'd got the gun off of me. And she shot him twice in the stomach. He folded over and hit the ground face first. I couldn't move. She told me not to follow her. Walked into the cave. 
I couldn't even say anything. I was just numb. I could see Herc still breathing, but I knew, I knew he was going to die. There was just so much blood. No way a man can live with it draining out of him like that, no. I didn't know what to do, so I just stayed there with him. I knew I was supposed to talk to him, make him know he wasn't alone, but what was I supposed to say? I just, I just sat there in silence until he wasn't breathing anymore. And I didn't see Shelby again. Either the tunnel leads somewhere or she's still in there. I got these seeds embedded in my forearms, little green spores, which are sending out roots under my skin. They're starting to divide and grow in there. I think they're on my back, too. Me and two volunteers went into the tunnel with flashlights. The walls were entwined tree branches hung with that weird pale fruit. The air was thick with the scent of the white flowers everywhere, and we had to breathe slowly to keep from choking on it. The floor was layers of decomposing plant matter, so deep it was a struggle to walk through. Shelby Everly had left deep footprints in the mulch. It wasn't hard to follow her, even when the tunnel forked. We tied the tags we used to mark evidence and trails around the branches to show the way back. The smell and the pollen made our eyes water and our noses run. Then we found her. I knew it was her from the remains of the orange windbreaker that hung in tatters around her waist. She was with her back to the wall, her arms and legs embedded in it, wrapped around with leafy vines. Her head was pulled back and wisps of her hair stuck out from under the foliage. Her face was mostly gone, replaced with a stretched and veined skin. Her mouth was open, and her tongue was swollen purple-blue, like an exotic fruit had been forced down her throat. Her torso was deformed by huge, translucent growths, fluid-filled sacs of stretched membrane. Inside them I could see the embryos of the things growing inside her. I recognized a deer fetus wrapped in tentacles. Something feline, maybe a mountain lion, with a mouth that ran all the way along its flank full of misshapen fangs. A bundle of feathered things tangled up with one another, rolling and pulsing in the slime. Dozens of smaller ones, too tiny to make out any details, all of them wriggling like tadpoles. I had the other two stay back from the body. They didn't need to see it close up. I shone my flashlight down the tunnel and saw more bodies. A lot older. One, I guessed, was a bear from the bones and pieces of fur that still clung to it. Others were just a couple of moldy bones hanging from the wall. Maybe some were human. I couldn't see enough to be sure. This is where the abnormal creatures came from. The bear and the deer that hikers had seen. The mosquitoes and the caterpillars and the trees outside. God knows what else. I didn't know what to do with Shelby Everly, so I left the body there. Whether she was alive or not, 
she was gone. I had the volunteers follow me out and head for the campsite. I didn't care about how I was supposed to report all this, or who I might have to explain it to. I just wanted to get off that mountain. The smell of the tunnel, sickly sweet flowers mixed with the rot, clung to me all the way down. It still hasn't quite washed off. I'm not looking forward to tying all this up. I had to leave Herc's body up there, which is going to take a whole bunch more explaining. Whatever I come up with, it'll have to keep anyone else from trying to find the high forest and the tunnel into its heart. I'll come up with something later. For now, I'm just grateful I got off that mountain. That's more than can be said for two out of the three hikers. And from what I've heard, the third isn't looking too hot. Brian Herkman and Michelle Everly were reported missing in the Morning Cloak Mountains, and in spite of a thorough ground and air search, they were never found. They're believed to have perished in an accident or fallen victim to an animal attack after becoming separated from the third hiker, Roman Blissette. That's the report filed by Gerald McCoffrey. Families were informed and statistics adjusted. No follow-up searches were made, and the County Search and Rescue Service managed to keep the matter from being passed up to the state level. It stayed a secret known only to a handful of volunteers who went up the mountain, and known in full only to McCoffrey himself. It was a risk writing down what he had seen. But I think he knew he had to make the truth available for someone who knew where to look. Someone like the Foundation. The anomalous incident surrounding the search for the missing hikers has elements in common with the loss of Mobile Task Force Iota-28 in their encounter with SCP-6889. They include rapid and deviant growths of plants and animals, and anomalous flora and fauna indigenous to the area. SCP-6889 have been influencing the area above Shibbet's Vale for decades, and given the density of the growth described by McCoffrey's testimony, probably for a lot longer beforehand. The 1992 incident had been added to the body of knowledge collated under Project Serapis. I'm almost done with this one. There's just one thing I need to tie up. Item number, SCP-8921-EX. Object Class, Euclid. Special Containment Procedures. SCP-8921-EX is to be kept in a standard humanoid holding cell with the addition of a self-contained air purification recycling system, with filters fine enough to catch the biological particles given off by SCP-8921-EX. These filters are to be regularly changed and cleaned. All contact with SCP-8921-EX and its cell is to be conducted under Level 4 Biological Hazard Protocols including protective gear, decontamination, isolated air supplies for all personnel, and compartmentalization of area and utensils. Biologic material shed by SCP-8921-EX is to be gathered and burned, all under the same Level 4 Biological Hazard Protocols. Description SCP-8921-EX is a humanoid formerly known as Roman Blissette. Chronologically, it is 63 years old, but the normal aging process of a human male has not taken place for over 30 years. SCP-8921-EX appears human from the hips down, albeit with pallid skin riddled with prominent greenish veins. The rest of its body is disfigured with plant-like fibrous growths forming bifurcating branches that push up from beneath the skin. So extensive are these growths that few vestiges of the original human form are left. SCP-8921-EX sprouts leaves and flowers, 
which then wither and drop away on a 12-month cycle. Experiments with light deprivation suggest a lack of light causes this new growth to be stunted, but not to stop entirely. During this process, SCP-8921-EX sheds spores which can latch onto and, through a mechanism not yet understood, burrow into living skin. Experiments with lab animals and limited tests on D-class personnel show these spores can take root and germinate in a host body's skin, creating plant-like growth similar to those on SCP-8921-EX. These spores have very high potential for infesting Foundation personnel and other SCPs, and are the reason SCP-8921-EX must be kept isolated with a contained air and water supply. SCP-8921-EX was first contained when it was reported to local police wandering the border between Montana and Wyoming, where it had become the subject of an urban legend concerning the so-called Green Man. It was captured and contained at Site-56 without incident, and was able to converse with interviewers. Using the name Roman Blissette and maintaining it was a hiker that had become lost and become infected with spores from anomalous fauna. The infection caused a deterioration in cognition, and so was unable to specify where this infection had occurred. It was gradually rendered nonverbal by plant growth on its jaw and could only communicate by writing. Its deterioration, both cognitively and physically, meant it lost the ability to do this approximately five years into its containment. The last legible word it wrote was, Please. Following an O5 directive, SCP-8921-EX is in the process of being reclassified as SCP-1. This week's episode is possible thanks to our patrons. Joining us this week, we have Nick, Queen Axie, Teteris, Nathan Derby, Jez Broom, William Marigolo, The Coffee Mancer, Obsidian Dark, Vamp, Ace Decker, Tristan, Fault, Turner, Bullet Bill 318, Peter Cargill, Tegan Z, Carbon 281, Robert Andrews, Salty, Petter, Dead Till Friday, Tron Wild, Dante PD, Lissa Discordia, Jules, Grady, and Tamara Rolota. Thanks, guys. Your support keeps the show going, and it helps us do what we do. And if you want to hear your name in the credits and get access to bonus and ad-free episodes, consider supporting us at patreon.com scp underscore pod. Project Serapis was written by Ben Counter. Galio was John Grills. Galio was John Grills. McCoffrey was Graham Rowett. Shelby was Alyssa Park. Roman was Sushant Laka. Herc was Alvin Bowling II. Our line editor is Daisy McNamara. Our sound designer is Dana Creaseman. Our music is done by the incredible Tom Rory Parsons. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit scparchives.com.